Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. All right, well, let's go to Revelation. Today, as we re-engage chapter 4, for some of you maybe that weren't with us, we began this study back in the fall, and we looked at chapters 1 through 3 over about eight weeks. We, we looked at the seven churches of Revelation and uh, the message that God gave to John for them. And then we, we took a hiatus for a time, and now we're going to re-engage, and we'll be in Revelation now through uh, probably mid to late May. Uh, on a week-by-week basis as we work through the text. But today we come to a, a very important aspect of Revelation uh, that, that is central to the understanding of the whole book this week and next week as, as well as we look at the throne of God and he is worthy. Let me go to the text, chapter four. I'm gonna read verses one through 11 before we continue with the message After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy, are you our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding and the obeying of his word today. Let me begin with a question this morning. A question that I don't want us to ponder for a length of time, but a question that will frame our thinking in regards to our consideration for the message this morning. And the question is this, what is your expectation when you come to church? What is your expectation when you plan to meet with God? 
Revelation chapter 4 addresses the throne of God. His habitation where he eternally exists. And what we see today is a revelation, an unveiling of where that place is. What we've considered in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, those are surely familiar to us. In other words, a a local church we can kind of understand, even though it was 2,000 years ago in the first century uh, AD, and and we can understand maybe a group of people, though even culturally and contextually quite removed from us in so many ways, but they were nonetheless a people who lived and who gathered as a local church, and God was speaking to them and, and had a message for them. We can comprehend that. But in chapter 4, John makes a decisive shift as he reveals his vision that God gave to him of heaven. And from here forward, John's attention in the writing of this letter, of this book, Revelation, moves to a heavenward perspective. One pastor friend of mine stated it this way that I like. I told him I'm going to steal this from you, but I may or may not give you credit for it. I guess I just did. He said this, John writes of infinite realities by speaking in earthly analogies. There are glories about our God and King that far surpass our capacity for language. And what we speak of and what we study and what we come to understand, we give verbiage to in every effort to understand. And yet there's so much more. That's what John is sharing with us today. That's what John is revealing to us from his own vision And I want to invite us to to give ourselves to these infinite realities by God's divine revelation. In in verse 1, if you'll go there with me, John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. A door is open before him. There is an invitation to come in. There is an opening to John. There's there's no knock that he has to do. There's nothing that he has to uh, pursue in this, but the door is open to him. And it is a door, he says specifically, of heaven. Now, in the New Testament, heaven can mean one of a, a number of things, explicitly four things that we'll see. It can be the habitation or the eternal dwelling place of God, which is what we'll see it as today. But the title heaven or the name heaven can also be a place that in, in Revelation will eventually be destroyed. God will create a new heaven and a new earth. In the end, and so there is a heaven, a reference to a heaven where it will be destroyed and replaced. Heaven is also a place of conflict. Heaven is a reference given to us of the war of the spirit world and where it rages and where God is attacked but never threatened on his throne. Where the evil one is trying to do battle even though he knows he's already a defeated foe. So heaven can be used in reference to a place of conflict beyond our own existence. And then ultimately heaven can be used for what we would consider just the sky. A place above us. And in all of these ways, 
We can conceptualize them but not fully comprehend because they, while they are attainable by us, they are still beyond us. And here we are introduced to this whole idea of where we are being, uh, shall we say, taken to see in the writing of John's vision. But in chapter four, he is very explicitly introducing us to the place of God's dwelling, where God himself dwells eternally. This is not a temporal place. This is an eternal habitation where the heavenly realities of all things, not just heaven, but the heavenly or the realities of all things are made plain for us. And once he is drawn in, he witnesses what it is that must take place. These are not predictions of future events such that we could hedge a bet and be pretty guaranteed that they were to come about. Rather, friends, these are revelation, a revelation of what shall be. It is the outworking of the divine will of God where he is in control sovereignly and supremely. There are no odds that it will be any way other than what God says. That's how we should frame our thinking about what we are studying. John sees God's eternal dwelling place and the realities of it are too glorious for man. They are of God's will made plain to understand. Verses two through four, he says this. He takes him in immediately into the spirit John says, immediately I was in the spirit. This is a phrase also that is used in Revelation uh, four times. And, and it is a phrase to tell us that John was under the full recognition that he was taken control of by the Holy Spirit. You see, divine revelation by God cannot be left to human capacity. There is no human capacity that can comprehend the revelation of God. But what John was about to see was the Lord's marvelous doing. His whole being, all of his faculties, all of his sensory perceptions, the very attention of his intellect was not only set on so that he was in control, but he's telling us in the spirit it was set under the control of the Holy Spirit. There's a big difference there. John is testifying that he was no longer in control, but fully submitted as he was under the control of Holy Spirit. And his vision was centered on the throne and the one who was seated upon it. The throne is a dominant theme as well of Revelation. Why? Because in all of the study and all of the nuance and all of the, shall we say, details that are prolific in the Revelation that John shares with us, this one theme is dominant. There's only one throne. And this is it. Don't miss it. The appearance of one who is seated on the throne is described in this way. It is described by fine jewels of jasper and carnelian. And more than just the actual stones that we might perceive, it is the imagery that is denoting one of 
power and one of majesty. And, and he tells us that wrapping the whole throne was this aura, was this emanation of, of those very uh, precious jewels from the throne itself that wrapped the entire throne in an emerald-like rainbow, a radiance that haloed the throne. And that halo denotes the eternal nature of the throne itself, that it is without end. There is no start, there is no finish, it just is because it is eternal. Around the throne emanating even further out were 24 lesser thrones, and on each of those thrones was seated what he calls an elder, clothed in white garments and, and adorned with a golden crown. These are likely angels of some superior order. They're not human beings as we would think of them, but they are the elders of heaven, likely an order of angels of some superior status. But the purpose for them wrapping the throne was that they were representative of the whole body of the faithful of God's body. And then John includes all that surrounds and radiates from the throne because by the presence of the one who is enthroned, everything that was around the throne was made more glorious. This is what I really want you to see, friends. Above all, the reader should understand this. Heaven's throne stands above all others in every way, in power, in majesty, and in glory. This is not just incomparable. It is wholly other than anything you could imagine. And as the description includes all that surround it, it also includes all that exudes from the throne. He tells us in verses five through eight that the one who is enthroned commands awe-inspiring attention, not only with his sight, but with the sounds that he utters. He has a voice like thunder. Seven torches are ablaze before the throne and these torches are a reference to the seven spirits of God, it says. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit. You say, but wait a minute, I thought there was only one Holy Spirit. There is, but the way that he is represented in Revelation is by the perfection of the number seven. As we walk through this study, numbers will also be important in the communication of what's transpiring in John's vision and in Revelation. And the way he uses those numbers will be consistent. The number seven will always be representative of perfection, of holiness. And it'll always be directly attached to the person and the presence of God. And that's why the seven spirits of the flaming, blazing torches are representative of the perfection of God's Holy Spirit as well. Moving beyond that, there is a sea of glass that he says is like crystal before the throne. This is not just simply a walk path up to the throne, but in every direction, it is a sea of crystal that emanates out. And just as if you stood on the seashore of the ocean and you looked out and there would be no end to the water that you beheld, so it would be, there would be no end to the crystal that surrounded the throne in your own sight. There is royalty here. There is splendor of the one who is seated on the throne because everything that goes out from it reflects, magnifies, compounds, and resonates that which comes from it. Can you imagine the blinding brilliance of blazing torches reflecting from pure crystal? You ever been into one of those mirror houses 
where they've got all the mirrors hanging from the walls and the ceilings and the floor and, and, and they'll have one article, maybe a, a light or a candle or one, one article that is sitting, but you can't find it because it is so perfectly reflected all over the place. And sometimes that article is you and you just run from it, but you can't get away from it, right? This is what we're seeing here, that, that these blazing torches are, are, are reflected through the crystal that is everywhere, and there is a brilliance that is unimaginable. And the depiction is a, a symbol here that conveys God's absolute holiness. There, there, is, no, there is no measure, there is no minutia, there, there is nothing but absolute holiness holiness and perfection, and all of it says to us a complete separateness from us. Friends, what Revelation 4 does, maybe better than any chapter in the whole of Scripture, is it presents to us the transcendence of our God. The very thing that confirms in our heart and our spirit that he is the one that is worthy of our worship because he is not like us in any way, in any measure, to any extent, in any manner or any form. He is wholly other than us. This whole chapter is screaming, you cannot imagine what I am seeing. And you wouldn't comprehend it if you did. The four living creatures inhabit the area around the throne. There is a lion, an ox, one with the face of man, and one that has an eagle in flight. Likely representative to some measure of that which inhabits the earth. Their eyes are all around, constantly attending, simultaneously never moving from the throne, but also constantly attending to the things beyond the throne of earth and all of other creation. And while these four are distinct from the cherubim, that class of angels, their closeness to the throne assigns to them a special importance because they are the ones who lead in the constant praise of God in their resonation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and is to come. Friends, be careful that you do not imagine four creatures as what you might think of as heavenly energizer bunnies. They cannot be stopped. They've got energy for days. They're all over the place. That's not what John is describing for us here, friends. But he, with one layer heaped upon the other, sees the throne and from it, everything that transpires, transpires because of it. That the glory of the throne is such that everything that takes place around it is fueled by it. This is not the capacity of these four creatures to be able to give worship in this way, but rather this is in his revelation, the unceasing praise of four creatures that are fueled by the majesty and the splendor and the glory of the holiness one of the one to whom they attend. In other words, they're just responding to the worthiness and they can't cease because the worthiness never ceases. He said, but don't they get exhausted? No, they don't. Why? Because that which sources them never weakens and wanes. Finally, verse nine through 11, John reveals the worship around heaven's throne. There is a full 
engagement for participation. There's there's not a crack, fracture, moment, or otherwise of anything, one, or otherwise in heaven that's not fully engaged in worshiping the one who's on the throne. And that worship is marked by the declaration of glory and honor of the nature and the being of the one who is enthroned. Along with giving thanks for his marvelous works, And it tells us they fall down before him in worship. They humble themselves and they bow down and cast their crowns before his throne. They take off their own glory and regalia and it is present only to recognize his glory as greater and more worthy. And their praise declares the worthiness of his being in glory, in honor, in power, as the creator, the sustainer, and the sovereign over all things. Friends, the one enthroned fuels the worship that fills heaven by the declaration of his worthiness. How does he declare his worthiness? He's present. He is present. Friends, I want you to see today this, that Jesus is enthroned in heaven. He is the one worthy of all glory and praise from all creation. You see, what John is telling us in Revelation 4 What he is communicating to us is there is no measure of existence that does not cry out with the worth, the praise, and the honor and glory of God. Imagine this. We we see it in small ways when Jesus walks on the earth. He speaks and the waves do what? They obey. Jesus speaks and the winds do what? They obey. Jesus speaks and the demons do what? They obey. Jesus speaks and the people, eh, they take it into consideration. We're gonna put that on our to-do list for the week and see what we can do with it. Listen, friends, there are no people in this yet because we're getting a pure, perfect picture of the one who is sovereign and supreme over all. This is what John is wanting to show us. If you really want to get to know someone, you need to go to their house, right? You go to somebody's house, you kind of see the way they live. You see the decor that adorns their life, the way they organize and pattern their lives. You see the celebrations and the remembrances of their life. You see the joys and sometimes even the sorrows of their life. But you know that person a little better, sometimes in conversation, but a lot of times just by observance, just by experiencing what it is that you take in. And, and, and I'll even go to a less tangible way that, 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 that you walk into homes and you can tell, is this a place of peace or a place of chaos? I mean, almost immediately you can tell. Well, the purest picture of God is best found at the closest proximity to his habitation. And if you wanna know who God is, This is the best picture. Jesus brings John in the spirit to reveal in closest proximity the very nature of his being. And John beheld what is unimaginable and indescribable. You see, Revelation confounds us not because John does a poor job of describing what he saw, but because human language is incompetent to describe the fullness of Jesus' excellencies. 
Because human intellect is incapable of comprehending the, the fullness of God and human imagination is unexpendable to the point to contain the majesty and the glory of his presence. These are infinite realities. And all we have are earthly analogies. But God is good to show himself through these things. Jesus, who is worthy of glory and praise from all creation, he's worthy of your worship too. I want to present to you in the time that remains four realities of eternity that reveal Jesus' worth of all glory and praise and worship in your life. And I want to see from the throne room of heaven brought to your own living room where you inhabit life. These realities that move us in the same way heaven is sustained in its worship. Eternal reality number one is this, it's the splendor of his majesty. It's the splendor of his majesty. Like Moses left in the cleft of the rock, John tells us he was immediately in the spirit to behold what was too wonderful for comprehension and too marvelous for words. The spirit holds John both to bring him to a place he could not go and to show him what he could not see without the spirit. But listen to me, there's a third reason John was brought in the spirit. It's because he needed to be guarded from what he could not withstand alone. That's right, without the spirit of God, John would have never lasted beyond the first fraction of an instant in this vision. And the spirit who holds John brings him to a place and shows him what he could not see all while it guards him. You see, friends, God wills to reveal himself that God is a, a God who is moving. Even Genesis 1 that says the spirit of God hovered over the darkness, the chaos, the nothingness. But God was moving and what was God doing in the midst of his moving? But he was revealing himself. He was preparing to speak that we might know who he is. God is not hiding from you. He is inviting you by an open door. And by his spirit, he is enabling you to see what you cannot see with your eyes, what you cannot comprehend with your mind, and what you would not survive with your capacities. But by his spirit, he says, this is who I am. And reveals the mysteries of eternity to us. Friends, there's not one aspect of our being that is suited to behold any portion of Jesus enthroned. No matter how casual we've crafted an image of God, he is never less than pure splendor and majesty and glory. I'm going to date myself a little bit here. It'll shock some of you because you still think I'm 28 or 9. We used to sing a chorus. said, you are beautiful beyond description." Too marvelous for words. Too wonderful for comprehension. Like nothing ever seen or heard. 
Who could fathom the depth of your love? Who could grasp the, grasp the infinite wisdom of you? You're beautiful beyond description. Majesty. Enthroned above. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you were simply stunned in awe of the presence of God? Caught, held, guarded, ushered in. Friends, God's not playing hide and seek. That is the evil one's deception about God upon us. But God will not, or excuse me, God will only be found not simply when we search, but when we seek with our whole heart. You say, what's the difference between searching and seeking? Let me make a distinction. When we search, we look for the unfound, the unknown. When we seek, we pursue what is known. Faith is the difference between searching and seeking. The psalmist says, with my whole heart, I seek you. And he declares that that is done in the next verse by the submitting of his life to the word of God. You see, John beheld the glory of God's throne because he submitted his whole being to be in the spirit. The splendor of God's majesty is only beheld by the hold of Holy Spirit as you humble your whole being to God's word. This is eternal reality, number one, and the splendor of his majesty. Don't worry, you won't behold it if you don't want it. There will be a day you'll answer to it. That's coming later. But you'll only behold it if you seek him. Eternal reality number two is the awe of his glorious presence. The awe of his glorious presence. John describes an ever-expanding glory that emanates from the throne like heat out of a fire. It is the appearance of one enthroned that, that could only be described by the most precious and the valuable of comparisons. That's why John is conjuring up these images with the most valuable and precious concepts and words that he can find. And the throne is wrapped by a rainbow that's emanating out from the throne itself and adorning it. And all around is the glorious splendor with even more thrones that aren't there for themselves, but they're there for the throne and the one that uh, the ones that sit on those thrones are only there, not in their own glory, but their glory is only present that it might be offered in praise and worship of the one who is worthy that sits in the midst of them. And the sounds of the throne are all inducing as much as the sights. There's nothing that is stagnant in the throne room of heaven. There is nothing that is ending. There is nothing that is waning or, or weakening. There's, there's no lessening of glory. It's unimaginable. It's unbelievable. Inconceivable. It's a whole sea of, of brilliant, unending glory ablaze. But I want you to notice this. When John stood in awe of the glorious presence of God, 
He was not bothered with what it did to him, but was only consumed by whose presence he stood in. The awe of God's presence comes only, friends, listen, with the losing of self and the splendor of his presence. I think here's an answer for one of the reasons we we simply don't behold the majesty of God in the way that that revelation is revealing to us. In our own expectations, yea, even our own practice far too often, and I'm going to speak in the next few moments about the, the broader church of my life, Maybe a little bit in history as I've studied. I can't speak too much of that. And I'm not trying to speak only to condemn or or only to build a straw man to tear down with condemnation, but to speak in a way that, that, that I believe statistically we see borne out today. We're reducing the awe of worship to casual comforts that leaves us undisturbed. We approach God's presence with little thought of anything other than what we can take away rather than the one to whom we behold. In other words, worship becomes a heightened sense of self-care strategy. Instead of an entering in by the door that is opened for us from the one who wants to bring us in. Our expectation is reduced to the thrill of an adrenaline rush that moves to the next sense of euphoria. And the one on heaven's throne knows nothing of what we so often call worship. I'm struck by this. John witnessed the throne, but he didn't participate. Why? Well, for number one, he was in the spirit. Well, why wouldn't the spirit let him participate? Because he wasn't part of it. He was only beholding it. There will come a time when John will participate. There will come a time when you and I will participate. But what God was desiring to do here, was willing to do, was to show John the throne of heaven, not to bring him into the practice of it. John was paralyzed by commanded attention, even at beholding it. But he uh, he was unmoved, not because he couldn't, but, but friends, more importantly, because he wouldn't. You see, it's not, like, it's not like God tied him up by the Spirit in a straitjacket and there's nothing he could do about it. No, that, that's not what we've seen here. But what John is saying is that his willful submission that he was taken into the Spirit, that, that the Spirit commanded control over him because he had been placed under the Spirit. He was not without control, but he was willfully surrendered to the control of the Spirit. How important this is for our world. Worship. It was about his heart's desire, not his human capacity. He wanted it. And he wouldn't move for fear that he might miss it. There was not a blink that occurred because the glory held his eyes open in awe. And what was beyond his imagination to, be, to, be, uh, to even approach the throne with now commanded every aspect of his attention. The glorious presence of God commands the peak of every sensory perception tuned and consumed to Jesus in complete awe to testify of who it is that we have beheld. Not to testify to what it did to us. Not to judge, well, I don't know if that was really any value for my life today. He didn't speak to anything that I stumbled with. 
this week. He didn't address anything that I'm approaching this next week. Friends, I want to ask you something. Do do you approach worship to evaluate and assess its value for you? Or to testify to the glory of the one who brings you near to his habitation? You see, when we walk in and go, God, here's what I need from you today. We throw off what the Spirit wants to do under the load of what we demand God must do if he wants us. And Revelation 4 is flipping all that on its head. John says, he didn't have to put me in a straitjacket because from within he commanded every faculty of attention of every sense of my life. I didn't want anything other than what God wanted at that moment. That's how God wants us to come to his throne, friends. That's what he's teaching us. Eternal reality number three. We see the posture of his glory in work, not just the splendor of his majesty or the, the awe of his glorious presence, but the posture of his glory in worship. When the elders worship, they fall down and cast their crowns at Jesus' feet while the four living creatures sing unceasingly. And their song is one of unending testimony to the holiness of the eternal one. It's, it's never ending. It's, and as we said, it's not coerced. It's not manipulated. He's not pleading with them, prodding, please, please, please participate. For the purpose of their ex- existence around the throne is this one thing, to declare the glory of the one enthroned is worthy. Everything around heaven's throne attends the worship of its being to declare the worthiness of Jesus in his glory. Everything. Just think about that for a moment. I'm going to repeat that. Everything around heaven's throne attends the whole of its being to declare the worthiness of Jesus and his glory. Everything. And yet again, how comfortable we've become in worship across today's church. I don't just mean in the chairs, the pews, or whatever it is. I mean in the pulpits. We've reduced worship to personal preferences, telling God about us. If someone were to bow down, we'd look for what got dropped or wonder what's wrong. And the pressure to keep everybody comfortable, satisfied, and unoffended is unceasing. You can't find a conference that talks solely about what God wants in worship without every breakup or break out of the conference in most of the main sessions adorning how to keep people engaged. (laughs) I don't see anybody in Revelation 4 having to be begged to worship. God help us that in any way as leaders we would do anything to cause you to think that our work was to please you. That this was about you. Am I saying it's not for you? I'm not saying that at all. You know that. But friends, I fear contrite hearts seldom visit our services. Rather, it's a heart that says, listen, I got a lot of need, but I'm going to have to wait and see 
if you're worth me opening up. If you impress me enough, if you speak to the things that I'm dealing with, if you sing the songs I like, or you know, whatever it may be, good grief, the list is endless. We live in a day, especially now, when more resources dedicated to instant access for experience. Yet participation statistically is less and less. When John describes the worship of heaven, he gives two postures and two actions. Did you see them? The elders fall down before him. That's posture number one. They cast their crowns and they speak or sing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's one posture and two actions. Where's the other posture? It's the first posture. And I beheld a throne and one seated upon it. Friends, let me tell you about the eternal reality of the posture of his glory in worship. You will never come to worship God and find the throne unoccupied. God will never be less worthy of your worship on any given day, at any given hour, in any given circumstances than he always has been, is, and forevermore shall be. This is the first posture of worship that Jesus is seated on the throne. And until we behold the one who is worthy, who sits on the throne in glory, we will never be moved to fall down and cast before him all our praise. Until our worship is an all-consuming of the one enthroned in true majesty and glory, we will never understand what is to come, even in the rest of our study, no matter how long or how deeply we search. We'll only use it to tickle our ears and tantalize our fantasies. See, how often we come to Revelation to get answers. And God gave Revelation to show us who he was. This is not an answer. It's a revelation. It doesn't need an application. It needs a full immersion. Until the same spirit that brought John in rules in you, you will never regard what God reveals to you as anything worth of any great attention by you. So when you walk away from this gathering, what worthiness of Jesus will the posture of your life testify to? The fourth eternal reality is the power of the praise of his name declared. The power of the praise of his name declared. The resound of heaven is the praise of God's worthiness. True glory demands praise, and we give it, we give it every day. We applaud all kinds of things in our life. We celebrate things. We post reels of them so we can see them over and over again, daily, weekly, annually, and all of that. So we're, we're familiar with this, and there's nothing wrong with that until we substitute that for the one who is really worthy of all. You know, sometimes people read this passage and you go, man, is all we're gonna do in heaven sing? Is that all we're gonna do? Are you ready? I'm not going to say. <laughs> We're going to do a lot of it. You do a lot of it. You sing in the shower. You sing in the car. You sing when you walk. 
But what I can say is this, the same glory that empowers the eternal praise from those who inhabit heaven is for us now. This is not a pie in the sky, maybe one day. But this is the God that we worship today, here and now, who has made a way by sending his son to die on the cross and forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from our sins and who gives us a new heart and puts his spirit within our heart. Why? To bring us in to a place we could not go on our own for a work we could not do on our own. And if we ever somehow got there, we would never survive on our own. But because of the Spirit, God says, come, come. Why? Because his praise is worthy. There is no amount nor extent of praise for God that will ever outpace nor surpass his worthiness. For praise begets praise without weakening, without waning, and no weariness. God's worthiness is poured out through praise by his name, and that empowers even greater praise. Listen, friends, there's two principles of praise from heaven's throne for us today. First of all, the power and majesty and glory that fuels heaven's throne is the same power and majesty and glory that fuels the life of every Christ follower who is in Christ, whom the Spirit of God lives within. It's the same power. And the second principle is this, that the more we praise God, the more of God's glory fills our life. His joy, his love, his power, his wisdom, his strength to meet our every need and our every desire of heart. Friends, the glory of God will never be outdone by any measure of your praise, but only multiplied unto greater glory compounded within us. You cannot because, or you will not because you cannot outpraise the worthiness of God's glory. The praise of God is the resound of his people with our tongues and our whole lives because his praise and by it, he empowers all of who we are. You feeling weak spiritually? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The heavier the weakness, the harder you praise. The deeper the sorrow, the more deeply you praise. Why? Because your need and your burden will never be outdone by the worthiness of God. Jesus, enthroned in heaven, is the one worthy of all glory and praise of all creation. Let's pray.